So we start our class uh, uh, once again, Isaiah for Beginners. This is uh, lesson number six in the series. And the title of this lesson is Here Am I, Send Me. Here Am I, Send Me. And uh, we're going to be working with a text uh, this morning, which is in Isaiah chapter six. So I'll be throwing up the, uh, the passages on, on the uh, screen, but if you prefer you know, reading it out of your Bible, then open your Bible to uh, Isaiah chapter six. Uh, one of the most uh, difficult decisions that I ever had to make was the decision to leave my job uh, as a customer service manager for a large uh, pharmaceutical company, uh, Smith and Nephew, and go into full-time ministry. I was you know, barely 30 years old at the time. There were so many questions that had no clear-cut answers. So many doubts about my ability, so much anxiety over how things would work out. I remember uh, making the decision with Lee's, you know, at the time we only had Paul, made the decision, I'm going to go into ministry. I handed in my resignation. I remember my boss saying, but we were just about to promote you. I said, yeah, no, I think this is what I need to do. And then uh, I came home and the following couple of days, I was leaving with the local preacher to go try to raise support. And when I got home, Lee said, oh, guess what? I'm pregnant. So <laughs> surprise. So there were a lot, of, you know, a lot of issues going out. When I finally, it's a long story, but when I finally arrived at OC, uh, Oklahoma Christian, I, uh, I found that most other people going into ministry felt pretty much the same way. They were torn, there were decisions, it wasn't easy. And it isn't just men going into preaching, but uh, other men and women who consider going into the mission field. Uh, look at Julie, uh, Julie Jones, uh, Julie Johnson to us, but Julie Jones, my goodness, uh, starting an, uh, an orphanage in Africa and having two of her children in one private school in a different country in Africa. And then she, you know, they're in Uganda. So, I mean, uh, all of the things uh, they've had to do to fulfill that, that calling. Uh, and uh, I've also had discussions, long discussions with brothers who have been asked to serve as deacons or elders and some of the questions and are always the same, you know, I'm not good enough and I, you know, I don't know if I can do this. You know, so there's lots that goes into you know, making the decision to go into ministry, whatever, you know, full-time ministry or if you're going to be a deacon, elder, something like that. Somehow when the call to ministry, whatever it may be in the church comes, there comes with it a lot of difficult um, to answer questions. And so for this reason, I'd like for us to study Isaiah the prophet, his call to ministry. And hopefully we can find direction and encouragement for the men and women that are being called into the various ministries of this congregation. We have young men here who want to preach. We have uh, uh, older men uh, who maybe it's time for them to step up uh, to uh, perhaps serve as deacons uh, and then even older uh, brothers who perhaps uh, need to consider uh, serving as uh, elders at some point. So uh, Isaiah is a good, uh, you know, he provides a really comprehensive example of this uh, decision making and the experience of uh, the call to, um, to ministry. So uh, let's uh, have a little bit of background on, 
Isaiah, I think we, we know it because we've gone over it recently, but just to bring everybody up to speed, most of what we know about Isaiah comes from chapters six to eight and chapters 36 to 39 of his book. He was the son of Amos with a Z, not to be confused with Amos the prophet. Uh, there's no information on his father Amos. We know he lived and ministered in Jerusalem for 53 years. Uh, from before 739, the year King Uzziah died to after 686 BC, the year that King Hezekiah died. These were all kings of Israel uh, or of Judah actually. Isaiah wrote biographies of both kings, which are referred to in 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 26, um, 22, and then later on in chapter 32. Uh, he was married and had at least two children, two sons, who uh, had symbolic names that were used in his prophetic ministry. One called Shir Jashub, which meant a remnant shall return, a name given to that son to convey hope that Judah would survive an attack by its enemies. And then another son, Mar Shalal Hashbaz, uh, which meant the spoil speeds and the prey hastens. And this was a reference to the coming destruction upon Judah's enemies, Syria and the Northern Kingdom of uh, Israel. So uh, based on the familiarity that Isaiah had with the inner uh, workings of the temple and his proximity to the royal court, it is believed that he may have even been a, a priest, come from a priestly family. Um, he was well educated as can be seen in his writing style and his position and education suggests that he was wealthy and part of the upper class of Judean society at the time. Isaiah was one of the few prophets who had disciples. Uh, read about that in chapter eight, verse 16. His relationship with them may have been similar to that which Samuel and Elisha, other prophets, had with what was called the sons of the prophets, or Jeremiah, for example, had with Baruch. So they had disciples that they were training and teaching. Uh, these disciples may have assisted in his ministry uh, and helped perpetuate you know, copying his writings and maintaining his writings. Uh, we don't know for certain when or how he died, and I think I've mentioned this before, but a non-inspired work called The Ascension of Isaiah says that he was executed by King Manasseh by being sawn in two. And this may have been the, uh, the uh, reference uh, in Hebrews where the Hebrew writer in 11 verse uh, 37, uh, he describes you know, the heroes of the faith. And he says, and I quote, the heroes of the faith, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, others were killed with the sword. So that reference to they were sawn in two may be a reference to how Isaiah uh, was uh, martyred. The times that Isaiah lived in, of course to understand any prophet requires a view of the times that he lived in and the conditions under which he lived and operated. There were three elements that influenced the conduct of Isaiah's ministry and preaching. First, prosperity. It was a time of prosperity. King Uzziah's reign, 780 to 740 BC, 
was one of great prosperity. Uh, and in the midst of all this wealth, Isaiah denounced the manner that this wealth was acquired, usually by the oppression of the poor. So the rich got richer and the poor got poorer. In addition to this, the wealthy were more easily exposed to and influenced by the idolatrous practices of their neighbors. And so many times it was the upper echelon who led the country into false worship. A lot like we see in our day and time where the rich and the famous and the powerful seem to be the ones that you know, latch on to new ideas and sometimes not so, so good ideas and uh, introduce these things into normal society. Uh, the location uh, of Judah was strategic where they were located. Judah was situated geographically in the middle uh, between two superpowers of the day who wanted each to overrun its territory in order to stage wars one against the other. And so Judah provided a good staging area. Uh, to the south there was Egypt, uh, to the north there was Syria and Assyria. And so those guys were you know, fighting with each other and they, they liked to use Judah as the, <laughs> where they jump off, you see, uh, for a battle. And Isaiah continually warned the Judean kings not to form partnerships with either of these powers in order to guarantee its safety, but rather to trust in God. You know, don't, don't use worldly ways to maintain and guarantee the safety of God's people. God himself will take care of his people. That was kind of a message that was repeated over and over again to the different kings that he served. Uh, the conduct of the kings themselves, uh, Isaiah's training and position made him a natural choice to be God's prophet or minister to the kings. Much of his work was dictated by the faith and conduct of the kings that he ministered to. So for example, Uzziah was at the end of his reign and he died the year that Isaiah was called into ministry. Uzziah was an able ruler and the kingdom enjoyed prosperity under him. He mostly obeyed the Lord until later in his reign, he sinned by improperly entering into the temple and he burnt incense in the temple, which the king was not allowed to do. Only the priests were allowed to do that, but he violated that rule and was immediately struck with leprosy because of that sin. And Isaiah spoke out during this time for condemning you know, the oppression of the poor by the rich. That was one of the themes of his, uh, of his ministry uh, immediately after uh, the death of Uzziah. Uh, Jotham, who was the successor to Uzziah, uh, he was Uzziah's son. He also was a good man who feared God, but during his reign, the idolatry that existed during his father's time was tolerated and it grew worse in his day. Isaiah condemned these practices and he warned of the punishments to come because of the unfaithfulness of the people. Then we had Ahaz, King Ahaz. That was the third king that he served under. Ahaz succeeded Jotham. 
and he was an evil king who against Isaiah's counsel made alliances with foreign powers in order to defend the kingdom. He was the one that you know, did that. Uh, much of Isaiah's work during this period, during, Isaiah, uh, during uh, Ahaz's reign, involved him warning the king against such things, but also prophesying about the eventual destruction of the northern kingdom and foreign nations as well. Because when you read Isaiah and you read a lot of condemnation, sometimes you're wondering, is he always condemning Judah? No, of course not. He's, he's condemning other nations around uh, Judah who are faithless and evil and so on and so forth. Uh, and so despite these dire warnings, uh, Isaiah continued to mix into his prophecies the future hope of a Messiah and the eventual restoration of the southern kingdom. So his, his, his preaching style had a certain uh, flow to it. He'd begin with a warning and then he'd continue with uh, you know, uh, a prophecy of the punishment that God was going to bring on the people if they continued to disobey. And then after he described that, he would always uh, put a promise in at the end that one day you know, God will come and rescue his uh, people. The Messiah would come, the people would be restored, you know, it would be a good time again. And then the last king that he served um, was uh, Hezekiah. Uh, he was a, uh, Hezekiah uh, was a reformer. Uh, he tried to right many of the evils of his father Ahaz. However, he continued the practice of forming alliances with regional powers for military reasons. That was just a bugaboo that these kings always were doing. Uh, it is during this period that Isaiah speaks of Judah's exile in Babylon. So Isaiah spoke of the time when Israel, the northern kingdom, would be destroyed. And he also spoke of the time when Judah, the southern kingdom, would also be destroyed. So he had a you know, wide breadth of, of, of uh, ministry uh, for over a long period of time. Some prophets, you know, they kind of pop up for one particular thing and then you know, they stop. You know, Isaiah was, was there for a long time. Um, his final prophecies, perhaps beyond even Hezekiah's life and until the end of his own life, speak of Babylon's downfall and the final triumph of God's will and purpose in the world. So Isaiah was a man fully engaged in the events of his time as a servant of God called to a special ministry. So now that we've kind of had a brief overview of his life and times, let's focus in on the subject of our lesson this morning. And that is his call to ministry and in what way his calling might resemble our own calling in the time of ministry. You, you always, uh, as a Christian, you always have to be prepared for the time and the moment when God actually calls you into some special kind of, uh, of ministry. And that's both for men and women. You know, we only think just the men, but the women are called into ministry as well in the, uh, in the church. All right, so let's go to chapter six, shall we? Uh, and just the very first uh, verse, it says, in the year of King Uzziah's death. Okay, just a few words, but it speaks volumes, right? It's interesting to note that Isaiah mentions King Uzziah's death because 
it not only fixes the historic date of his vision, 739 BC, but also his state of mind. Uzziah prospered as long as he followed the Lord, but he eventually disobeyed God and he had a tragic finish, uh, you know, dying as a leper uh, in isolation. Isaiah had reason to be discouraged and disillusioned in all of this. And so he was called at a time of discouragement and disillusionment. The king was dead. A new king uh, ruler was on the throne. Uh, uh, Judah's enemies were growing stronger and the nation was kind of drifting into idolatry. And so any man of God, any believing man of God who knew God's word, who believed it and practiced it, would be very disillusioned at you know, what was taking place in his country at that time. And so we read about Isaiah's vision at this moment in time and at this moment of his own personal feelings about what's going on. So we read in the year of the King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face and with two he covered his feet and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled uh, is full rather of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with uh, smoke. Well, so uh, Isaiah, his mindset, you know, is what's going to happen? You know, what's, what's going to happen? The, the king we've relied on is dead. We have a new king, untested. We have growing enemies. The, the country is going to pot, you know, going to, into What's going to happen? Who's in charge? And then during that moment, God answers him with a vision. And the answer, uh, the question to Isaiah's question was that God was on his throne and was allowing Isaiah a glimpse, a vision of the heavenly realm. In other words, he was allowing Isaiah to get a glimpse of reality. The reality is, or was, Uzziah is not on the throne. A new king, untested, is on the throne. We don't know what's going to happen here. But in the vision, God tells, Uzziah, God tells Isaiah, but I am on my throne. God is on his throne. Earthly rulers, weak with sin, might die or be deposed, but God is always on his throne. That should be a comfort to us even today. You know, we, no matter what political party you, you happen to vote for, you know, when, when you when the guy you don't like and you vote against, he comes into power or she comes into power, you know, you're, you're slapping your head and saying, oh boy, what are we going to do? But it's the same thing with the, with the other party. You know, when your guy comes in, you know, it's the, the other half of the country is saying, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? You know? And so to Isaiah, God says, never mind who's on the throne here on earth. I'm on the throne in heaven. This should be you know, comforting for you. 
Almost everyone in the Bible who has a vision of heaven sees a throne. For example, Micaiah saw God's throne in 1 Kings 22. Job saw God's throne, Job 26. David saw God's throne, Psalm 9:4. Daniel saw the throne, Daniel 7:9. John the Apostle mentions the throne more than 35 times in the book of Revelation. So Isaiah may have been discouraged because a great leader was no longer on the throne of Judah, but God shows Isaiah that there is no reason to worry because he is on the throne in heaven. Now some other features of the vision showing the power and the sovereignty of God's position. Interesting to note, first of which is mentioned is the train. It said the train of his robe filled the temple. At that time, kings, even today we see that when there are special events, kings wore robes that had long trains in the back to demonstrate their power and their position. After all, uh, the king needed attendance just to carry and arrange his robe and train when he moved around. That's how important a person he was. The longer your train, the more important you were, the greater king you were. As a matter of fact, this is where we get the idea of a train you know, for a dress, for a wedding dress. That comes from the idea that the bride is portrayed as a queen for that day. And so she's wearing an outfit with a long train and you usually have the bridesmaids. You, know, you notice when they come up here, the bridesmaids come and they arrange her train. Well, that's the whole idea. She's, she's a queen for that day. She's a princess, okay? God's train here is so, if you're going to talk about how long the train is, God's train is so long that it fills the entire temple, the most sacred of all places. Then he talks about the angels, refers to them as the seraphim, uh, were attending him. Now kings have ministers, army commanders who attend them, you know, people of high stature. God has angels, which are beings even more powerful than any human being uh, attending him. The term seraphim means burning ones, burning ones. Ezekiel describes them in this way, and I read from Ezekiel. In the midst of the living beings, there was something that looked like burning coals of fire, like torches darting back and forth among the living beings. The fire was bright and lightning was flashing from the fire. And so there's a, another description of these seraphim. Okay? In addition to this, Isaiah adds that they had six wings. John the apostle also says, that uh, he says the same thing about the six wings of these seraphim that he saw in Revelation chapter eight. Uh, six wings, why six wings? Two wings to cover their face, which was an act of humility, demonstrating that they, like us, are too lowly to look upon the face of God. Two wings to cover their feet, another gesture of humility signifying that even though they are powerful uh, spiritual beings, they are still created beings and they hide their most humble area. 
and then two wings to fly, which express their willingness and their ability to serve God. And then a third feature of this vision, um, the angels proclaim God's uh, holiness. Uh, note that the angels are not addressing the Lord directly, but they are proclaiming His glory to one another. They're not talking to God, they're talking holy, holy, holy. They're saying that to, to each other. They say holy three times because uh, there are three persons in one God, in the Godhead, and their praise accurately reveals the nature of God. Holy, holy, holy. The angels could see God's holy influence and power extending throughout the world, even if Isaiah in his discouragement could not. Then it says the uh, temple was uh, filled with uh, smoke. Um, uh, Isaiah could feel the trembling of the, uh, of, the, um, of the temple himself, of the temple itself. And he could see the power of God, the smoke of God's presence among the, uh, among the angels. And so this was no dream. This was like reality in 3D. Uh, as a Jew, Isaiah knew that God's presence uh, had bef before been manifested by a, uh, uh, the pillar of a cloud, right? In Exodus chapter 13, uh, or smoke, Exodus 19 at Mount Sinai, or the cloud of God's glory that filled the temple in 1 Kings 8, 10 to 12. So his vision is accurate because it accurately describes what other prophets saw when they had a, a glimpse of vision of heaven. Uh, the angels, the seraphim, the smoke, the power, uh, the structure. And so at a moment of possible doubt or discouragement, God reveals himself to Isaiah in his heavenly glory to confirm that he is and he remains the sovereign king of heaven, no matter what is happening down here on earth, no matter who is sitting on the throne or who's in charge here on earth, he ultimately is sovereign above all of these things. And so in the following verse, we read about Isaiah's reaction. Uh, verse five, then I said, woe is me for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so uh, despite his intelligence and privilege, per, uh, despite his personal integrity and spirituality, uh, Isaiah sees himself for what he really is, a sinful man living among a sinful uh, people. Uh, compared to the other men, he may have seemed you know, righteous, but compared to the angels, he was weak and small, not even able to praise God the way they did. And before God's brilliance, his own sins and his own failings were extremely evident and damning. You know, we don't have to have a vision of heaven. We just sometimes read something in the Bible and it reveals to us our own sinfulness and our own weakness. And we recognize many times, just for a moment, you know, 
the chasm between ourselves and God. I mean, it's like, it's a bridge way too far to cross, you know. And many times we have the same feeling Isaiah has. We realize, oh God, how can you accept me? You know, and many times it's, it's that that, 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 uh, uh, that stops uh, men and women uh, from taking on tasks or responsibilities in the church because they feel inadequate to do so. And so Isaiah is having this same reaction. Now, he was also a man who knew uh, the word and who knew the law. And he realized that he was before God without a mediator, without any covering, without a sacrifice. And so he rightly understood that he was doomed. I mean, think about it. If the priests could only go and only the high priest into the Holy of Holies and could only go there once per year and could only go in there after having sacrificed for themselves and for the people so that they would not be killed, he realized there's no chance for him entering into the very presence of God with no preparation. He had no sacrifice, he had nothing. Isaiah's vision of God served to bring into sharper focus his own sinful nature and sense of lostness for himself and for his people. And so this is Isaiah's response. Now we have God's response to Isaiah in uh, verses six and seven. It says, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. And so the altar was the place where man's sins were dealt with in the temple here on earth. Animal sacrifices made and burned as a type or a preview of Christ's sacrifice to come for the sins of all men. So the altar Isaiah sees in the heavenly place is where Christ's sacrifice continually exists before God, cleansing the sins of all men. And the angel takes a burning coal, which is the power of purification, and he touches uh, Isaiah's lips. Interesting to note that Isaiah's lips were on one hand, the source of his sins, right? But at the same time would become the instrument of his ministry. And so this is the significance of touching his lips. Isaiah is told the meaning and the result of this action by the angel. His guilt is removed, his sins are forgiven, and thus he is now fit for ministry. What caused Isaiah to fear guilt because of sin before God has now been removed. And then we have the actual call to ministry in the vision. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Notice he refers to himself in the plural. Then I said, here am I, send me. Now God revealed himself to Isaiah for a reason and that was to prepare him for ministry. Notice that the word says, then I heard the Lord asking. 
Until his cleansing, Isaiah heard only the angels proclaiming God's holiness and only his own heart's condemnation. But now he is privy to the voice of the Godhead as the Lord speaks to the council of angels and says, who will be you know, God's messenger to the people? This time Isaiah answers without fear and without shame. Here I am, he says, send me. The assurance of forgiveness and the clarity of a guilt-free conscience are evident in Isaiah's desire to do God's will. So Isaiah's experience reveals three main principles involved in God's call to ministry, any ministry at any time in history, including today. The call to ministry principles. Principle number one, veneration before activation. Veneration before activation. Isaiah was familiar with the temple. Uh, uh, he had a worshipful attitude uh, and he had this worshipful attitude before he was asked to do anything. The angels had six wings. Four of these were used in acts of humility, only two for service. Jesus, for example, gave Mary's humble act of quiet learning the blessing over Martha's you know, busyness and serving. Uh, 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 first, we must humble ourselves and be devoted to worship and seeking the Lord's presence before we can be used in his service. If we don't know how to worship God, if, if worship is not something that is meaningful to us, uh, that takes up a significant part of our time, not just a Sunday, Wednesday, but I mean our time, you know, our, our lifetime, then we're not ready to serve him. Okay, that's the point of veneration before activation. We forget that our first and foremost responsibility is to adore God. The first commandment is to, is to love God. The main activity of heaven is reverence of God. I mean, if you don't like worship, you're not going to like heaven. <laughs> we will never hear God's calling if we don't first learn to be still and know that he is God. And so I repeat, principle number one, veneration before activation. Principle number two, realization before visualization. In other words, you cannot serve God effectively if you don't have a true sense of yourself first. Look at the great servants of God in the Bible. Their doubt and hesitation was often an acknowledgement of their true condition before God. You know, Abraham saw his and Sarah's advanced age. You know, how can God do anything with us? You know, we're, we're, we're past our peak, you know, we're, we're old people, nobody, you know, God can't use us. What about Moses? He hesitated because of his perceived lack of leadership skills. I'm not a talker, I'm not a, a man like that. Daniel continually expressed his guilt and failings before God. Mary saw herself as not worthy for the task to carry the baby Jesus, but she was ready to obey. 
Paul the apostle called himself the greatest of sinners. Isaiah immediately confessed his impurity and his impending doom because of it. And all these people, all of them had three things in common. First, they saw clearly and acknowledged their unworthiness and sinfulness and not as false humility, but a true vision of who and what they really were like. Secondly, they all had a special vision or a relationship with God. And thirdly, they were all used in a mighty way in God's service. And so realization before visualization means that the more you see yourself as you really are, the more you will be able to see God as he really is and see him as he reveals himself through his word. And the, the, the greater your vision of him, the more able you are to understand and receive a call to ministry from him. If you don't know God, you, you can't hear the call to ministry. So how can you accurately serve or tell others about God that you can't see if you don't even know who you are, a person that you can see? Very difficult. And then uh, that brings me to principle number three in the call to ministry. And that is consecration before confirmation. There are usually three steps involved in a call to ministry, the calling, the consecration, and the confirmation. The first step is the calling itself. God in some way calls us to some task or some area of ministry or service. For a few in the Bible, the call came through a vision, a dream, or some other supernatural phenomenon. For example, Moses in the burning bush and Paul had a vision. For most, however, it's an urging to serve in a particular way, or the recognition that we have a special ability that we want to offer God in his service. Or for others, it's a burden or a need just to do something to serve the Lord in some way. I usually tell people that if the idea or the feeling that this is what you ought to be doing in ministry never leaves you, then it's a, it's a good sign that you're being called. My own experience was, uh, you know, I, I was sitting in a subway car going somewhere and you know, in a subway, it's not a very private place. And so there were two girls who were talking. I think you've heard me tell this story before. There were two young women sitting just across from me and they were speaking in French, you know, and so I understand French and I could understand what they were saying. And they weren't trying to hide, you know, they weren't whispering, they were just talking, you know. And what they were talking about was their weekend and their boyfriends and they were talking about, yeah, you know, when I, you know, we went out on a couple of dates to this club and I met him in a club and then we went to another club and you know, we've known each other about three weeks and now we're, we're trying to figure out if we're going to move in together. You know, and the other girl was talking about, she broke off with her boyfriend, she hates her mother, you know, her mother's a pain in the neck and you know, blah, blah, blah. And I was sitting there, I was a new Christian, I hadn't been a Christian for very long. And I said to myself, these girls do not have a clue. They don't have a clue about what life is really about. They have no vision of God. 
they have no sense of spirituality, just from the little bit of conversation that I heard from them. And in my mind, I still remember it to this day, my mind said, somebody has to do something. Someone should tell them you know, the things that you know that I had discovered, you know, which were the gospel, how clear it was, someone needs to tell them about that. And then immediately afterwards, the thought struck me, well, what about you? You speak French, you know the gospel, you understand the need, what about you? And that's how it began. And then, you know, the experience just continued. You know, this, this need that, that I could perhaps fulfill just never let me go. And, you know, one thing after another, and, you know, I, I, uh, I went into ministry. Uh, the second step is consecration. Consecration uh, before confirmation. Consecration refers to the preparation one goes through in order to carry out their ministry or their calling. For example, several years separate Saul's call to ministry on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter nine and his actual departure with Barnabas on his first missionary journey in Acts 13. A lot of us think, well, you know, he, he had the vision on Wednesday and then the following Monday he took off. You know, no, many, many years went by between these two things. In their intervening years, he spent time in Tarsus, he spent time in the desert, time traveling to Jerusalem, uh, time teaching in Antioch. He was being consecrated prepared, separated for his original calling, which was to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. But that consecrative period lasted years. Today, a, per, a period of consecration can involve personal spiritual growth, formal ministry training, as well as interning and, and mentoring. Some people think that as long as they, they feel called to serve, this qualifies them for ministry. You know, Moses is a good example of what can happen when we skip this step here, you know, the consecration step. You know, he originally felt God's call to lead his people. And what did he do? He went out on his own to rally them, only to end up killing an Egyptian and then running for his life. And then he spent the next 40 years of all places in the desert, preparing for his ministry as God's consecrated him for his true ministry, which would take place 40 years later. And where? <laughs> In the desert. In Isaiah's case, what was needed was to prepare him to speak as a prophet of God. And so the purification of his lips was the consecration to ministry. In a sense, the altar also represented the gift of the Holy Spirit made possible by Christ's sacrifice now given to Isaiah, empowering him uh, to speak. Now Isaiah is ready for the third step in the process, which is the confirmation to ministry. Calling, consecration, confirmation. In Acts 13, three, we note that Paul and Barnabas were confirmed, some say ordained, some say commended, into their ministry by prayer and the laying on of hands of the apostle, excuse me, the prophets and the teachers who were at Antioch. 
This followed the example of the apostles who prayed and laid hands on the seven men who were confirmed and appointed as deacons to their ministry. The point is Isaiah is ordained or appointed to his prophetic ministry by God himself who confirms his role by sending him to the people with a very specific message. So let's close this out uh, by going back to our title, Here Am I, Send Me. In the new year, many times churches invariably begin new programs, even consider selecting new elders or deacons, even adding ministry staff. It's also a time when we recruit volunteers to help with Bible school or the youth group or so on and so forth. In all of this rush to get everybody involved, let's not overlook the basics concerning the call to ministry in every area, great or small. So to summarize, let's remember that it is God who calls us through his word, his spirit and his church. In every instance, we are encouraging people to serve by and for the Lord. And in every instance, when you feel the call, the urge to volunteer to respond, it is God who is calling you. And it is to him that you are responding, even if there is no majestic vision, no supernatural thing going on. Secondly, consecration is not the same as confirmation. Some think that a degree, you know, in a Bible, a degree in Bible from a college or a Bible school is what makes you a minister. Uh, or if you have a, a special skill in service or leadership, you automatically qualify for ministry. No one in the church is self-appointed to ministry. God always uses the church to confirm someone to ministry. For example, Saul had a vision he heard the Lord, he met with the apostles, but he did not begin his ministry until the church laid hands on him and sent him to preach. In order to do things in a decent and orderly way, everyone who serves needs to be trained, consecrated, as well as confirmed by the leadership to their tasks. You know, there are no self-appointed evangelists. There are no self-appointed deacons. There are no self-appointed elders. God uses his church to appoint, to confirm. Always, he works through his church. I've seen some guys say, well, I'm going to be a self-appointed missionary to a place. Really? My first question is, what church has anointed you to this work? What eldership oversees your tasks and is responsible for your ministry and your soul? And I've heard some young guys say, no, I am, I'm, I'm in charge of all of this. You know, I've never seen that work out very well. So I pray that this lesson will stir your spirits so that everyone here will reconsider their service to the Lord's church and your hearts will be moved to say, here I am, Lord, send me, or fill in the blank with your name if this lesson applies to you this morning. All right, well, that's our lesson. From Isaiah chapter six, we'll continue next week, selecting again, uh, different uh, passages to uh, focus on in the book of Isaiah. Thank you for your attention.